an officer of the Navy, writes about a foolish and fatal blunder at sea. The officer is Lawrence Sergeant Hall, born in Massachusetts in 1915. Another award-winning author, Hall, provides us our next two episodes. Let's discover what overconfidence can provide. So tuck in everybody and enjoy The Ledge. On Christmas morning, before sunup, the fisherman embraced his warm wife and left his close bed. She did not want him to go. It was Christmas morning. He was a big, raw man with too much strength, whose delight in winter was to hunt the sea ducks that flew in to feed by the outer ledges, bare at low tide. As his bare feet touched the cold floor and the frosty air struck his flesh, he might have changed his mind in the dark of this special day. It was a home day, which made it seem natural to think of the outer ledges merely as some place he had shot ducks in the past. But he had promised his son, 13, and his nephew, 15, who came from inland, And that was why he had given them his present of an automatic shotgun each the night before on Christmas Eve. Rough man, though he was known to be, and no spoiler of boys, he kept his promises when he understood what they meant. And to the boys, as to him, home meant where you came for rest after you had had your Christmas fill of action and excitement. His legs astride, his arms raised, the fisherman stretched as high as he could in the dim privacy of his bedroom. Above the snug murmur of his wife's protest, he heard the wind in the pines and knew it was easterly, as the boys had hoped and he had surmised the night before. Conditions would be ideal, and when they were, anybody ought to take advantage of them. The birds would be flying. The boys would get a man's sport, their first time outside on the ledges. His son at 13, small but steady and experienced, was fierce to grow up in hunting, to graduate from sheltered waters and the blinds along the shores of the inner bay. His nephew at 15, an overgrown farm boy, had a farm boy's love of the sea, though he could not swim a stroke and was often sick in choppy weather. That was the reason his father, the fisherman's brother, was a farmer and chose to sleep in on the holiday morning at his brother's house. Many of the ones the farmer had grown up with were regularly seasick and could not swim, but they were unafraid of the water. They could not have dreamed of being anything but fishermen. The fisherman himself could swim like a seal and was never sick, and he would sooner die than be anything else. He dressed in the cold and dark and woke the boys gruffly. They tumbled out of bed 
their instincts instantly awake while their thoughts still fumbled slumbrously. The fisherman's wife in the adjacent bedroom heard them, apparently trying to find their clothes, mumbling sleepily and happily to each other, while her husband went down to the hot kitchen to fry eggs sunny side up. She knew because, well, that was how they all liked them. Always in winter, she hated to have them go outside. The weather was so treacherous and there were so few others out in case of trouble. To the fishermen, these were no more than woman's fears to be taken for granted and laughed off. When they were first married, they fought miserably every fall because she was after him constantly to put his boat up until spring. The fishing was all outside in winter, and though prices were high, the storms made the right rate of attrition high on gear. Nevertheless, he did well, so she could do nothing with him. People thought him a hard man and gave him the reputation of being all out for himself because, well, he was inclined to brag and be disdainful. If it was true, and his own brother was one of those who strongly felt it was, they lived better than others, and his brother had small right to criticize. There had been times when in her loneliness she had yearned to leave him for another man, but it would have been dangerous. So over the years, she had learned to shut her mind to his hard driving and take what comfort she might from his unsympathetic competence. Only once or twice, perhaps, had she gone so far as to dwell guiltily on what it would be like to be a widow. The thought that her boy, possibly because he was small, would not be insensitive like his father, and the rattle of dishes and smell of frying bacon downstairs in the kitchen, shut off from the rest of the chilly house, restored the cozy feeling she'd had before she was alone in bed. She heard them after a while go out and shut the back door. Under her window, she heard the snow grind dryly beneath their boots and her husband's sharp, exasperated commands to the boys. She shivered slightly in the envelope of her own warmth. She listened to the noise of her son and nephew talking elatedly. Twice, she caught the glimmer of their lights on the white ceiling above the window as they went down the path to the shore. There would be frost on the skiff and freezing suds at the water's edge. She herself used to go gunning when she was younger. Now, it seemed to her, anyone going out like that on Christmas morning had to be incurably male. They would, none of them, think about her until they returned and piled the birds they had shot on top of the sink for her to dress. Ripping into the quiet pre-dawn cold, she heard the hot snarl of the outboard 
taking them out to the boat. It died as abruptly as it had burst into life. Hmm. Two or three or four or five minutes later, the big engine broke into a warm, reassuring roar. He had the best of equipment, and he kept it in the best of condition. She closed her eyes. It would not be too long before the others would be up for Christmas. The summer drone of the exhaust deepened, then gradually it faded in the wind until it was lost at sea, or she slept. The engine had started immediately in spite of the temperature. This put the fisherman in a good mood. He was proud of his boat. Together he and the two boys heaved the skiff and outboard onto the stern and secured it athwart ships, meaning across the ship from side to side. His son went forward along the deck, iridescent in the ray of the light the nephew shone through the windshield, and cast the mooring pennant loose into the darkness. The fisherman swung to starboard, glanced at his compass, and headed seaward down the obscure bay. There would be just enough visibility by the time they reached the headland to navigate the crooked channel between the islands. It was the only nasty stretch of water. The fisherman had done it in fog or at night. He always swore he could go anywhere in the bay blindfolded, but there was no sense in taking chances if you didn't have to. From the mouth of the channel, he could lay a straight course for Brown Cow Island, anchor the boat out of sight behind it, and from the skiff, set off their taller's off Devil's Hump, 300 yards to seaward. And then the tide would be clearing the ledge, and they could land and be ready to shoot around half tide. It was early, it was Christmas, and it was farther out than most hunters cared to go in this season of the closing year, so that he felt sure no one would be taking possession ahead of them. He had shot thousands of ducks there in his day. The hump was by far the best hunting. Only thing was, you had to plan for the right conditions, because you, you didn't have too much time. About four hours was all, and you had to get it before three in the afternoon when the birds left and went out to sea ahead of nightfall. They had it figured exactly right for today. The ledge would not be going under until after the gunning was over and they would be home for supper in good season. With a little luck, the boys would have a skiff load of birds to show for their first time outside, well beyond the legal limit, which was no matter. You took what you could in this life or the next man made out and you didn't. The fisherman had never failed to make out gunning from Devil's Hump, and this trip, he had a hunch, would be above ordinary. The easterly wind would come up just stiff enough, the tide was right, and it was going to storm by tomorrow morning, so the birds would be moving. Things were perfect. 
The old fierceness was in his bones, keeping a weather eye to the murk out front and a hand on the wheel. He reached over and cuffed both boys playfully as they stood together close to the heat of the exhaust pipe running up through the center of the house. They poked back at him and shouted above the drumming engine, making bets, as they always did, on who would shoot the most birds. This trip, they had the thrill of new guns, the best money could buy, and a man's hunting ground. The black retriever wagged at them and barked. He was too old and arthritic to be allowed in December water, but he was jaunty anyway at being brought along. Groping in his pocket for his pipe, the fisherman suddenly had his high spirits rocked by the discovery that he had left his tobacco at home. He swore. Anticipation of a day out with nothing to smoke made him incredulous. He searched his clothes and then he searched them again, unable to believe the tobacco was not somewhere. When the boys inquired what was wrong, he spoke angrily to them, blaming them for being in some devious way at fault. They were instantly crestfallen and willing to put back after the tobacco, though they could appreciate it what it meant only through his irritation. But he bitterly refused. That would throw everything out of phase. He was a man who did things the way he set out to do. He clamped his pipe between his teeth and twice more during the next few minutes he ransacked his clothes in disbelief. He was no stoic. For one relaxed moment, he considered putting about and gunning somewhere nearer home. Instead, he held his course and sucked the empty pipe, consoling himself with the reflection that at least he had whiskey enough if it got too uncomfortable on the ledge. Preemptorily, he made the boys check to make certain the bottle was really in the knapsack with the lunches where he thought he had taken care to put it. When they reassured him, he despised his fate a little less. The fisherman's judgment was as usual accurate. By the time they were abreast of the headland, there was sufficient light so that he could wind his way among the reefs without slackening speed. At last he turned his bows toward open ocean, and as the winter dawn filtered upward through long layers of smoky cloud on the eastern rim, his spirits rose again with it. He opened the throttle, steadied his course, and settled down to the two-hour run. The wind was stronger, but seemed less cold coming from the sea. The boys had with had withdrawn from the fishermen and were talking together while they watched the sky through the windows. The boat churned solidly through a light chop, flinging spray off her flaring bows. Astern, the headland thinned rapidly till it lay like a blackened sill on the gray water. No other boats were abroad. The boys 
fondled their new guns, sighted along the barrels, worked with the mechanisms, compared notes, boasted, and gave each other contradictory advice. The fishermen got their attention once and pointed at the horizon. They peered through the windows and saw what looked like a black scum floating on top of the gently agitated water. It wheeled and tilted, rippled, curled, then rose, strung itself out and became a huge raft of ducks escaping over the sea. A good sign. The boys rushed out and leaned over the washboards in the wind and spray to see the flock curl below the horizon. Then they went and hovered around the hot engine, bewailing their lot. If only they had been already set out and waiting, maybe these ducks would be crazy enough to return later and be slaughtered. Ducks were known to be foolish. In due course and right on schedule, they anchored at mid-morning in the lee of Brown Cow Island. They put the skiff overboard and loaded it with guns, knapsacks, and tallers. The boys showed their eagerness by being clumsy. The fisherman showed his in bad temper and abuse, which they silently accepted in the absorbed tolerance of being boys. No doubt they laid it to the lack of tobacco. By outboard, they rounded the island and pointed due east in the direction of a ridge of foam, which could be seen whitening the surface 300 yards away. They set the decoys in a broad, straddling V, opening wide into the ocean. The fishermen warned them not to get their hands wet. And when they did, he made them carry on with red and painful fingers in order to teach them. Once the last taller was bobbing among his fellows, brisk and alluring, they got their numbed fingers inside their oilskins and hugged their warm crotches. In the meantime, the fishermen had turned the skiff toward the patch of foam, where, as if by magic, like a black, glossy rib of earth, the ledge had broken through the belly of the sea. Carefully, they inhabited their slippery nub of the North American continent, while the unresting Atlantic swelled and swirled as it had for eons round the indomitable edges. They hauled the skiff after them, established themselves as comfortably as they could in a shallow sump on top, lay on their sides a foot or so above the water, and waited guns in hand. In time, the fishermen took a thermos bottle from the knapsack and they drank steaming coffee and waited for the nodding decoys to lure in the first flight to the rock. Eventually, the boys got hungry and restless. The fishermen let them open a picnic lunch and eat one sandwich apiece, which they both shared with the dog. Having no tobacco, the fisherman himself would not eat. Actually, the day was relatively mild, and they were warm enough at present in their woolen clothes and socks underneath oilskins and hip boots. After a while, however, the boys began to feel cramped. 
Their nerves were agonized by inactivity. The nephew complained, mm-hmm, and was severely told by the fisherman, who pointed to the dog, crouched, unmoving except for his white-rimmed eyes, that part of doing a man's hunting was learning how to wait. But he was beginning to have misgivings of his own. This could be one of those days where all the right conditions masked an incalculable flaw. If the fisherman had been alone, as he often was, stopping off when the necessary coincidence of tide and time occurred on his way home from hauling trawls and had plenty of tobacco, he would not have fidgeted. The boys, being nervous, made him nervous. He growled at them once again. When it came, it was likely to come all at once, and then, in a few moments, be over. He warned them not to slack off, never to slack off, to always be ready. Under his rebuke, they kept their tortured peace, though they could not help shifting and twisting until he lost what patience he had left and bullied them into lying still. A duck could see an eyelid twitch. If the dog could go without moving, so could they. Here it comes, the fisherman said tersely at last. The boys quivered with quick relief. The flock came in, downwind, quartering slightly, myriad, black, and swift. Beautiful, breathed the fisherman's son. All right, said the fisherman, intense and precise. Aim at singles in the thickest part of the flock. Wait for me to fire, and then don't stop shooting till your gun's empty. He rolled up onto his left elbow, spread his legs to brace himself. The flock bore down arrowy and vibrant. Then, a hundred yards beyond the decoys, it veered off. They're going away, the boys cried, sighting in. Not yet, snapped the fisherman. They're coming round. The flock changed shape, folded over itself, and drove into the wind in a tight arc. Thousands, the boys hissed through their teeth. All at once, a whistling storm of black and white broke over the decoys. Now, the fisherman shouted, perfect! and he opened fire at the flock just as it hung suspended in momentary chaos above the tallers. The three pulled at their triggers and the birds splashed into the water until the last report went off unheard. The last smoking shell flew unheeded over their shoulders and the last of the routed flock scattered, diminishing Diminishing, diminishing in every direction. Exultantly, the boys dropped their guns, jumped up, and scrambled for the skiff. 
I'll handle that skiff, the fisherman shouted at them. They stopped, gripping the painter and balancing himself. He eased the skiff into the water, stern first, and held the bow hard against the side of the rock shelf. The skiff had rested there. You stay here, he said to his nephew. No sense in all three of us going in the boat. The boy on the reef gazed at the gray water rising and falling hypnotically along the glistening edge. It had dropped about a foot since their arrival. I want to go with you, he said in a sullen tone, his eyes on the streaming eddies. You want to do what I tell you if you want a gun with me, answered the fisherman harshly. The boy couldn't swim and he wasn't going to have him climbing in and out of the skiff any more than necessary. Besides, he was too big. The fisherman took his son in the skiff and cruised round and round among the decoys, picking up dead birds. Meanwhile, the other boy stared, unmoving after them from the highest part of the ledge. Before they had quite finished gathering the dead birds, the fisherman cut the outboard and dropped to his knees in the skiff. Down, he yelled. Get down. About a dozen birds came tolling in. Shoot, shoot, his son hollered from the bottom of the boat to the boy on the ledge. The dog, who'd been running back and forth whining, sank to his belly his muzzle on his forepaws. But the boy on the ledge never stirred. The ducks took late alarm at the skiff, swerved aside and into the air, passing with a whirr no more than 50 feet over the head of the boy, who remained on the ledge like a statue without his gun, watching the two crouching in the boat. The fisherman's son climbed onto the ledge and held the painter. The bottom of the skiff was covered with feathery black and white bodies with feet upturned and necks lolling. He was jubilant. We got 27, he told his cousin. How's that? Nine apiece. Boy, he added. What a cool Christmas. The fisherman pulled the skiff onto its shelf and all three went and lay down again in anticipation of the next flight. The son, reloading, patted his shotgun affectionately. I'm going to get me ten next time, he said. Then he asked his cousin, what's the matter? Didn't you see the strays? Yeah, the boy said. Well, how come you didn't shoot at them? I didn't feel like it, replied the boy, still with a trace of sullenness. You stupid or something? The fisherman's son was astounded. What a highlander! But the fisherman, though he said nothing, knew that the older boy had had an attack of ledge fever. <sighs> Cripes, his son kept at it. I'd at least have tried. Shut up, the fisherman finally told his son, and leave him be. At slack water, three more flocks came in, one right after the other. And when it was over, the skiff was half Full of clean, dead birds. During the subsequent lull, they broke out the lunch and ate it all and finished the hot coffee. For a while, the fisherman sucked away on his cold pipe. Then he had himself a swig of whiskey.
the boys passed the time contentedly, jabbering who shot the most. There were 92 all told. Which of their friends they would show the biggest ones to? How many each could eat at a meal, provided they didn't have to eat any vegetables? And now and then they heard sporadic distant gunfire on the mainland at its nearest point, about two miles to the north. Once far off, they saw a fishing boat making in the direction of home. At length, the fisherman got a hand inside his oilskins and produced his watch. Do we have to go now? asked his son. Not just yet, he replied. Pretty soon. Everything had been perfect. As good as he had ever had it. Because he was getting tired of the boy's chatter, he got up, heavily in his hip boots, and stretched. The tide had turned and was coming in. The sky was more ashen, and the wind had freshened enough so that whitecaps were beginning to blossom. It would be a good hour before they had to leave the ledge and pick up the tallers. However, he guessed they would leave a little early, on account of the rising wind, he doubted there would be much more shooting. He stepped carefully along the back of the ledge to work his kinks out. It was also getting a little colder. The whiskey had begun to warm him, but he was unprepared for the sudden blaze that flashed upward inside him from belly to head. He was standing, looking at the shelf where the skiff was. Only... The foolish skiff was not there. <laughs>